Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20. Let's give attention to God's Word. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled, I love that word, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have a sure, a steadfast hope in you. That you are faithful to your promises. Thank you that, God, you have sworn by your perfect name, by all of your perfect attributes, you have sworn to be faithful to your promises. Thank you that we can trust your word, that we have a hope that is sure. And that as Jesus has gone before us, we have a hope that is, in your presence, secure. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning, help me as I preach. May I preach your word. Lord, would you, would you impart your Holy Spirit to all of us? Father, enable all those who hear to cast aside anything for not from you, Lord, and to embrace what you have for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week... As many of you know, it was the anniversary of Reformation Day, about 495 years ago. Martin Luther boldly tacked up 95 theses about the abuses of the indulgences of the Catholic Church. He was bold that day, but he wasn't always bold. Ten years later, ten years into the Protestant Reformation, as we now call it, ten years into that, he experienced a dark time, and, and he wrote of this dark time. For more than a week, I was close to the gates of death and hell. This is the bold Martin Luther, not bold now. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. You see, he experienced what most Christians do. He experienced severe trials and testing of his faith and temptations. He experienced those dark times which try the soul, but surprisingly within a year or so of that, he then wrote the famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. How did he do that? How did he go from being bold to being despairing and feeling like he lost Christ wholly 
to then write, a mighty fortress is our God. See, I believe Martin Luther was able to do that. He was able to write those words in the, song, in the hymn that say, we will not fear. He was just fearing that Christ might be lost. And he says, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. You see, as we know, Martin Luther, he was, he was challenged by despair. He had some serious failings. He was, at, he was desperate at times to cling to hope. And at times he lost sight of hope, as all of us can tend to do. But the thing that sustained him, the thing that enabled him to have perspective, to have faith again, to set his eyes to the place where he knew that God had willed his triumph, his truth to triumph through us. How he could do that is he reminded himself of the truth, of the hope that he had in God. These verses that we have this morning, they're meant to, re, re, uh, <laughs> meant for, to remind us that our feelings can't be trusted that we cannot trust circumstances to be a reliable interpreter of God's faithfulness in the long term. Just like Martin Luther knew that the worst trials and temptations could be used for our good, the promises of God gave him hope, and God's promises are meant to give us hope as well. Later, Luther wrote, If I live longer, I would like to write a book about assaults upon the soul. For without them, without assaults upon the soul, see, he's gotten perspective, without assaults upon the soul, without them, no man can understand Scripture, faith, the fear, or the love of God. For without assaults upon the soul, no man can understand Scripture, faith, the fear, or the love of God. He does not know the meaning of Hope, who was never subject to temptations. At times, we too can feel overwhelmed. We can feel overwhelmed by the evil one and like Martin Luther, tremble in desperation, can't we? You ever had those times when you felt overwhelmed, when you, you felt that Christ was wholly lost? We were all subject to temptations, and as Luther said, our temptations, though, are meant to help us understand the true meaning of hope. Don't let your temptations, your trials, the storms that you may be facing right now, your sense of loss, don't let them lead you to despair. Instead, let them lead you to the place where Scripture, where God intends to understand hope. You see, we need hope. We need something or somebody to rely on. We were made. God made us to need hope. We were made to be reliant creatures. We, we were made to find hope outside of ourselves. And we need to understand the true meaning of hope. You see, we've, because we've fallen away from God as, as sinners, because humanity has walked away from God consciously, we've lost sight of our true hope, our lasting hope, our sure hope. And yet, in the person of Jesus Christ, we can see Jesus and find hope. When we become hopeless, it's very dangerous, isn't it? You ever had those seasons of hopelessness? You lose perspective. You become discouraged. 
You may have even despaired of your life, had fleeting temptations or maybe lasting temptations to do something drastic. When we feel like we don't have hope, when our hope is in something else or someone else, when it seems to be fading, we can then tend to search for hope in other people and other things. Without hope, we can look for something else to live for and to hope in. People often begin looking for hope in pleasure. Some people turn to alcohol abuse and drugs and pornography, fornication or sexual sins. They're hoping these things will satisfy them, provide some kind of of hope, but they're fleeting and empty. So you go from one thing to the next. Hoping maybe this will help, maybe this will dull the pain, maybe this will distract me enough so I can just maintain, so I can just keep going. Sometimes people have a hope in a career, thinking that if I only climb the corporate ladder, if I only get this job or this certain level, this certain position or role, then things will be better. If I only live in this certain place, if I'm closer to family, if I'm closer to this or that, if I'm living near the beach... I love the ocean. I miss the ocean, by the way. Um, If we can only do those things, then then everything will be better. People can hope in relationships with other people. Do you ever ever hope in a relationship? They can hope that if they only have a spouse, or sadly some people hope that maybe one day I won't have a spouse. Thinking that I'll be able to make it if only I would be better off than if only I had a better relationship with my friend, my classmate, my roommate, my parents, my siblings, then I could endure. Think, then things would be better. We can even hope at times that if we do something to change our appearance or our shape or our physical fitness, then, then we'll be able to, to endure. And parents hope our kids will not only be smart enough or able enough to face the trials and temptations that life will throw at them, but I hope sincerely that My kids will love Jesus. But if my hope is in my parenting ability, or a certain methodology, or a practice, then it's a false hope. It's an uncertain and unstable hope. We're never meant to hope in methodology or practice. We all have a tendency to hope there, though, don't we? We have a tendency to to look to a certain methodology, or practice, or Something to give us, to, to give us assurance, to keep us, to sustain us. Sometimes we look to others who have gone before us thinking that, well, if it worked for them, then if I just do that, it'll work for me too. Now, it's not wrong to, to learn from other people. In fact, we're called to learn from other people. But not to look to practices to save us, to secure us, to keep us. We can latch on to something if we find a practice or a remedy for our problems and We can latch on to it and place hope in whatever practice or remedy we find. And then we have this this funny tendency, don't we? We can tend to preach. We can tend to preach to everybody, I found this thing, it's awesome! And then we can tend to be, be proclaimers of this thing or practice or remedy as if this is the source of hope. And suddenly our hope can shift from where it really needs to be, where it should be, where it really is the only lasting, secure hope in Jesus. And it can shift to these other things and solutions and... This is great. It can subtly shift our hope from Jesus. And when that solution or remedy or methodology fails, it doesn't live up to our expectations, we can become hopeless. When one is hopeless, 
One's prone to give up entirely. Like Martin Luther said, Christ is lost. But he found out he really wasn't. If you're feeling like Christ is lost, let me assure you from Scripture this morning, we have a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor for our souls that takes us into the presence of God. But we have to cling to our hope constantly. Our hope's not in this life or its rewards or in our strength or our ability or in circumstances. We have hope in God through Jesus Christ. And there's a, there's a main idea here that the author of Hebrews, he's trying to impart to the verses we just read. He's trying to impart the main idea that God's faithfulness to His promises, God's faithfulness to His promises gives us confidence to hold firmly to our hope. God's faithfulness to His promises That's what gives us confidence. Not our faithfulness to God's promises or to obey God. No, God's faithfulness to His promises, that is what gives us confidence. And no other place can we have confidence except in God's faithfulness to His promises to hold firmly to our hope. And there's three points that the author is making in these verses. He makes a point in in verses 13 to 15 and 16 to 18 and in the latter half of 18 to 20, and he's, he's reiterating three different ways that we can have confidence to hold firmly to our hope. And the first reason that he gives is that God is faithful to His promises. Look in verse 13. God's faithful to His promises. It says in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. The author of Hebrews has been warning the readers and exhorting the readers all along, hasn't he? If you've been reading through the book of Hebrews with us, if you've been here on Sunday mornings, you will have found that he's been telling them of Jesus and showing them the superiority of Jesus to to any tradition, to any religion, to any other place of hope. And you see, the original readers of the book of Hebrews, they were beginning to wane in their assurance, remember? They were starting to waver in their belief, and as a result, they were tempted to lose hope when trials and suffering and temptations came. They were tempted, like you and I are tempted, to turn back to the rituals of the past. They were tempted to go back again to what they felt like was safer and more stable. You ever feel like that? You're tempted to go back to what feels safer, what feels more stable. Because it was more acceptable, more mainstream. They were tempted to go back and fit in, to have a safe life. And the author has been showing how no, Jesus can be trusted because he's better than the law. He's better than the prophets of old. He's better than any king or earthly ruler. And in the first five chapters, the author of Hebrews, he's been laying out for us that Jesus is faithful in every way. He's faithful not just one way, but in every way. Jesus can identify with us. He sympathizes with us. He can truly help us, giving us His unlimited grace and mercy in our time of need. These are wonderful promises the author of Hebrews has been showing to us. But the readers, he says, have become dull of hearing. And that's our temptation as well, for us not to grasp the meaning of the promises of God, to not see who Jesus is, to not see His faithfulness and be affected. And we can become dull when we continually hear these things and we fail to apply them to our hearts and our lives and remind ourselves of the truth. 
we can become dull of hearing too, and it leads to unbelief. And he shows them, in the last couple chapters, the extreme danger of unbelief. Like walking off a cliff. So he warned them not to be dull of hearing. And and he says, he's confident they won't stay there because he knows them. Aaron helped us see from the passage last week that he's confident, the author of Hebrews and God, the Holy Spirit, is confident that for those who are in Christ Jesus, they can be sure that they will be diligent and active listeners. But he still encourages them. He encourages us. To be diligent, active listeners, constantly fight unbelief, to actively put on hope. And it's a battle, isn't it? You face that battle, you face the battle of hopelessness at times. For your marriage, for your family, for your kids, for your job, for your future, whatever it might be. Feeling like other people are picking on you in school or nobody likes you or whatever it might be. Feeling like you're not smart enough or do you, do you battle hopelessness at times? We're to constantly fight unbelief and actively put on hope. Um, Let's let's look back in in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6. The author from last week, we saw the author exhorted us and he said, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. You see, that's the context that we find our verses in this morning is that were to have the same earnestness, the same full assurance of hope to the end. Don't be sluggish, but be an imitator of those who through faith and patience, like Abraham had faith and patience and inherited the promise, so we too can have faith and patience and inherit the promise. This is how we know if we're really in Him and we will persevere. Perseverance and the full assurance of hope, it's evidence we not fall away, but we must earnestly desire Earnestly pursue the full assurance of hope, not being sluggish, but imitating those who by faith and patience inherited the promises of God. So in our text this morning, he reminds us of the example of Abraham. That's why we have this example here. He explains why it was that Abraham could hope in God's promises. How could this dude who was called out of the land of Ur, who had not known God, how could he rely? How could he trust in God? And he gives the readers two reasons why they too and why we too can follow Abraham's example and be imitators of Abraham's hope. See, Abraham hoped in two things, in God's character and God's oath. He hoped in God's character and God's oath that God would be faithful to his promises. So what were God's promises? Look down in verse 14 or up on the slides. God said, surely, surely I will Bless you and multiply you. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. God promised that he would surely bless and multiply Abraham. Now the first readers of this letter, they were Hebrews. They would have known that God was indeed faithful. They would have known that God gave a promise to Abraham to bless him when Abraham was 75 years old. And they would have known, though, that he didn't have Isaac until he was 100, 25 years later. It took 25 years for him to see the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises of God. But the words that he quotes in verse 14, they're from Genesis 22, when 
the Lord speaks to Abraham just after God had commanded Abraham to kill his only son. So God was just beginning to fulfill the promises and Abraham and Isaac was becoming a man. And then God says, now take this hope that you have. Take the beginning of the fulfillment of my promises, the beginning of the, of the first hope that you see, and take him and slaughter him. Abraham had a test of faith. He was challenged. Would he believe in God's character, in God's promises, in God's oath? And then, to be sure, so that Abraham was sure, God swears by himself after Abraham was tested and Abraham went to slaughter his son, God stopped his hand and he spoke from heaven and he said in Genesis twenty-two sixteen, By myself, by Yahweh, by I am that I am, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Isn't it wonderful to be on this side of the promises? To see that God has surely blessed the offspring of Abraham. And that he has given... To Jesus, the possession of the gate, of the gates of hell, of all his enemies. We, we heard here earlier in Hebrews that God has given all of Christ's enemies as a footstool for his feet. He's in the process of making that complete. These Hebrew readers, they would have known, though, that, that God had blessed Abraham and his descendants through dark times, through perilous times, and over the long haul. They would have read that Abraham had a dream about the people being enslaved for 400 years and then see God's faithfulness 400 years later. They would have seen God's faithfulness all throughout the Old Covenant. They would have known God, in fact, did multiply the descendants of Abraham. And Abraham was not just blessed in his lifetime, but through all the descendants of Isaac onward. Now, what the author of Hebrews is telling us, now through Jesus Christ, a descendant of Abraham, through Jesus, all nations truly can be blessed, truly are blessed. In Jesus, all the promises of God are realized. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Are you hoping there? In verse 15, Look at verse 15 for a moment. It says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. He didn't see the promises right away. He didn't even see the beginning of the promises until 25 years later. And even then, he only saw the very beginning in Isaac. He didn't see all the generations of Isaac. He waited patiently. He endured severe testings of his faith. But God was faithful to His promises. We have to wait patiently at times, don't we? You ever have to wait patiently? You ever feel like you've been waiting 25 years and then I've only got the beginning? God's promise. What has He promised? He's, he's promised to set us free from sin completely. But we don't see that yet. 
He's promised to sanctify us, to bless us fully. But we don't experience that completely yet. He's promised that all things will work together, even bad things, for the good of those who love Him. And yet sometimes we just can't figure out how that works. He's promised to make us into His image. And yet we're not fully made into His image. He's promised He'll never allow us to be tempted with more than we can bear. He's promised that we will overcome. He's promised to restore us. To give us a glorified body. And yet I know that's very much not true yet. My body's falling apart. Wasting away day by day. It's a reminder that we have a hope somewhere else. He's promised to make all things new. There's many other promises that are ours in Christ, but at times, they can seem like they're a long time coming. And we can't see how they're true, but the author of Hebrews is telling us, no, follow Abraham's example of patiently wait for the fulfillment of God's promises even when you don't see them, because you can be sure, we can be sure, the, all, the, the readers of Hebrews could be sure that like Abraham, we too will obtain the promise. Verses 16 to 18, they give us the second reason why we can have confidence to hold firmly to our hope. He's giving us three reasons why we can have confidence to hold firmly to our hope. We can hold firmly to our hope because God's faithful to His promises. We can hold firmly to our hope. The second reason is that God's promises are guaranteed. God's promises are guaranteed. They're guaranteed by an oath. God's promises are guaranteed. Look in verse 16. It says, For people swear... By something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. No one swears by himself. Everyone swears by someone or something greater. When I was a kid, I don't know if you ever did this when you were a kid. When I was a kid, I used to swear on my grandmother's grave. Probably wasn't a good thing to do. I didn't really understand what that meant. I'm not sure why it was such a solemn and sacred oath at the time, but it seemed really solemn. I swear on my grandmother's grave. Cross my heart and hope to die. It just seemed really solemn. We had no idea what we were saying, but, but it meant we were serious. That meant we, we, we meant business because we were swearing by our grandmother. Even no matter how crazy some of our grandmothers might have been, we were swearing by somebody greater than ourselves. Today, we have contracts, right? We don't often swear by oaths and verbal oaths. We have contracts and when we bought a house, and if you've ever bought a house, you'll understand that we truly write our O's down on paper and we write a lot. Um, we, we promise and pledge using our name. We sign on the dotted line. And when we bought our house, I remember there was about 100 pages, literally. About 100 pages of this contract. And, are you kidding me? And we had to sign at least 50 times, probably more than that. But I remember counting, losing count somewhere around 50. I thought, this has taken half an hour just to sign my name. I mean it for real already. Can we get on with this? Can I just... Sign the, the last page, please. And uh, we, we agree by all those signatures, though, to take the penalty of the law on ourselves if we don't keep our oath. But back when Hebrews was written, they didn't do that. They didn't speak that way. They didn't have contracts that way. So when they would have received this letter, they would have been very accustomed to the practice of swearing solemn oaths verbally. It would have carried the same and perhaps even greater weight than our legal 100-page contracts do. And we still have a little, little bit of remnants of that in, in society around us. 
if you've ever been a part of the legal system or watched maybe a courtroom drama, when you go before the judge, you're asked, generally, do you solemnly swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? What are the last four words? So help you, God. You're affirming, you're swearing by someone greater. By answering yes, you mean you're affirming that you're swearing by God's name. And by implication, you're willing. Now, you might not be thinking this. No, hardly anybody who says this is probably thinking it. But they're saying is, I'm willing to incur the wrath of God Almighty if I don't tell the truth. And I'm calling him to testify that I really am telling the truth. And The highest public office in, in this country that a person can hold is, is the office of the president. And interestingly enough, no matter how pagan our nation has become, nearly every president since Lincoln and onwards has always ended his oath of office with the phrase, so help me God. Why do we do that? Well, there's, there's a practice that is carried on because we know inherently that, that we need to swear by someone greater than ourselves. Because we really, we can't be trusted in ourselves. We can't call, trust me, by me. Well, we, that would be ridiculous. So we swear by, by God when we make an oath. It's, it's final for the confirmation into the office of the president. It's the last thing they say. So... God, in this verse, having no one higher to swear by, he swears by himself when he swore to Abraham, effectively saying, so help me, me. God's oath using his own name. All of his, he was calling into account all of his character, all of his attributes, all that he is in his perfection and holiness. He was calling himself in every way, in all of his character, in all of his attributes, he was calling them into account and saying, you can trust me, and here's why. Because it's me. There's no one more perfect, no one greater, no one more reliable. And so he swears by his own name and it's final, and he's holding himself accountable. He's promising all of his divine might, power, character, knowledge, and all of his attributes. He's swearing that he will do what he said. We, we can be sure because God's promises are guaranteed by himself. What higher guarantee do you want? What higher guarantee do you think you need? What position do we place ourselves in when that's not enough for us? And when we put ourselves as the judge above the true judge and don't believe what he said, God's oath is final and reliable because he calls on himself to make it final. Look down at verse 17. It says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. But we have not only God's oath, we have all of God's character that's being sworn by. His oath calls his unchangeable character as the confirmation of his purposes and promises. Look in verse 18, please. Verse 18 says, so that by two unchangeable things, God's character and his oath, his attributes, who he is, and his oath, his promise, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, his character and his oath, we, uh, listen to these words, we who have fled 
for refuge might have not a weak encouragement, not a feeble encouragement, not a temporary encouragement, a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And he's, he's really using even a, an under an underemphasized way of saying a strong, a strong encouragement, strong encouragement. Really, there's no stronger encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. When God says that all who come to Him will be saved, He means it, and we don't have to wonder if this applies to us. Maybe you don't feel like you even know how to believe enough. I've had those times. Martin Luther had those times. All the saints of old have had those times. Here's the good news. You don't have to be sure of your feelings. You can hope in God despite your feelings. Maybe persecution or people making fun of you. You ever have that happen? Maybe those, those things tempt you to wonder if God's forgotten about you. But God's all-knowing, eternal nature and His, His unfailing love it should convince you that you have a sure hope set before you. You may not feel strong enough to fight temptation. You ever feel you're like you're too weak to fight sin, temptation? You feel like it's too much for you? You can be sure God will never give up on you. He will never give you more than you're able to bear. He will strengthen you. He will sustain you. But we need to flee to God for refuge. Where do you flee? Where do you go for refuge? Where are you turning for refuge? Where are you turning for hope? We must flee to Him from the devil and all His temptations. We must flee to Him for refuge in the trials and storms of life. We flee to Him for refuge from His own wrath from our sins. Sometimes the storms of life, they seem even bigger to us than the most recent superstorm Sandy that pummeled the Northeast last week. But we can flee to Him for refuge. No one is bigger than God. Nothing, no one is stronger than God. No one is wiser than God. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Are you thinking and meditating on those promises, those truths? No one's more loving than God. No one's more able than God. No one has more grace and mercy. No one's more reliable and faithful. No one is more trustworthy. Where do you flee for refuge when things get tough? Where do you run to take cover? Uh, we'll share a picture of you with you of this is from the great East Japan earthquake. It hit the Tohoku area in March 11th of 2011. In the quake, it was followed by by tsunamis that devastated many cities in the area. It created huge aftershocks and triggered the emission of radiation from a nuclear plant. Many took refuge on higher ground or what they thought was higher ground, but most were not safe from the effects of the 55 foot high wave. I can't even imagine that. A 55 foot high miles long wall of water. And it slammed against the Tohoku region. And 15,811 people were killed by the quake in its aftermath. And when I first saw this picture, I may not be able to see it, but there's, these are people here. There's nine people clinging to the... That's, a, that's about 50 some feet high right there, that wave is, covering the town. And they were clinging to the radio mast and the railing on the rooftop of a building. People beneath them had sadly already been swept away. But they survived as they 
held fast to that mast and railing. Only those who clung to a safe place of refuge survived, made it to the end. Sometimes it can feel like that, can't it? It can feel like we've been slammed with this massive wall of water in life. It can feel like there's no hope, like I cannot believe, I can't see a side to side on that. It can feel like we're going to be swept away and drowned. We can run to God for refuge though. God is no flimsy mast or railing. God is our ever-present help in time of need. You see, Scripture tells us it's impossible for God to lie. He who has sworn to all who flee to Him for refuge, He's sworn to you and I, He's sworn to the readers of Hebrews, that if you've fled to Him for refuge, He will save. He has sworn He will never pour out His wrath on His refugees. Oh, that's good news. Because we all, all Christians really are refugees. He'll never let temptations be more than we can bear, even if it feels like the the waters of life are just crashing in around us. Not only is, is it saying, not only is God's character unchangeable, meaning that He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, He isn't trying to trick us either. He doesn't lie. He doesn't say one thing and do another. He doesn't call us and tell us that we can flee in for refuge only to trap us. He promises steadfast love to us. And even though we might not understand circumstances, we may indeed endure horrendous waves in life. Horrendous trials in this world that has fallen, full of people who are fallen. God promises... And His promises are faithful and steadfast and movable. A mighty fortress is our God. Even though we might experience some brutal effects of sin and the curses of the fall. Look, look at the second half of verse 18. Look at your Bibles. It says, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You see, in the face of the deepest waters of life, we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And then look in verse 19. We have this. God's faithfulness to His promises, His oath, His name, His character, a strong encouragement before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Isn't that a wonderful picture? When those flood waters are rushing... We won't be swept away. We have an anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Here's the final point the author is making to show us why we can have confidence. Remember three reasons why we can have confidence to hold firmly to our hope? You see, God gave His own Son as the guarantee of all His promises. The author of Hebrews has been showing us that He's the fulfillment of every one of God's promises. He gave His Son to us so we might have an immovable hope. It's not based on our own faithfulness. You see, no one before Jesus could be faithful enough. No one could be steadfast enough. No one could really be fully trusted enough. And all of history leading up to Christ showed that. Thousands of years, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. No one... Not even God's 
anointed one prior to Christ, all of his prophets and priests and kings. None of them. But Jesus. Jesus has been perfectly faithful. And now our hope is not in our own righteousness, but in the fact that all of Jesus' perfect obedience, it was given to us. And then all of our sins and failings and weaknesses and all those things were counted against Jesus and He was punished fully for us. He was the ultimately pure sacrifice. And He took the ultimate penalty for our sins. And now, these verses are telling us that He stands forever anchoring us in God. And the third thing that we see, the final thing we're going to see from these verses in, in 18, the latter half of 18 through 20, our third point is suggests that we can trust our anchor to keep us. You see, hope, it penetrates behind the curtain that once separated us from God. We once had no way to go to God's presence. We once were hopeless with no way. With no way to receive hope from God. With no way to receive forgiveness. With only wrath facing us. With only hell as our destination. And yet now hope has gone behind the curtain that once separated us from God's presence. Now we can, in hope, enter into where Jesus has already gone. That's what it's telling us. We can, in hope, enter to where Jesus has already gone, into the sanctuary of God. You see, Jesus has gone into the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. And you know what He's done? He's opened up the curtain. He says, come on in. You couldn't pass before. But I've, I've made a way. I've, I've gone in as your forerunner because you know what? Now you can come. Come, come in. I, you, have a hope, you have a hope in here. You don't have wrath. You don't have punishment. You have hope. I've opened up the curtain. I've gone before you. And you can come in. He represents us before God. He secured our cleansing from our sins. He's enabled us to come after Him into God's bountiful presence. And this is a sure hope that we can trust in, isn't it? Don't we need a sure and steadfast hope? Don't you need a sure and steadfast hope? You see, nobody ultimately is able to rely on themselves and nobody's reliable. In the end, we're all going to fail. We either fail by growing old or dying or wearing out. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that really appealing to think about? But here's the hope. We have a hope in Jesus. That we can go in, pass in through the curtain. You know, sometimes we can hope in the reliability of a new car and we can enjoy it for a time, but yet 20 years later, a million miles, it's, it's highly unlikely that car is going to be as reliable as it once was. My, my grandmother, she was uh, a very strong and proud German woman. She was small, but she was huge. <laughs> she was small, but she was huge in heart. She, she was born in wartime Germany before the end of World War I. 
Her father died in Flanders Fields fighting for Kaiser Wilhelm. It was one of the most brutal wars of modern times. She later immigrated to the United States only to live through the Great Depression. And then she continued to go on through some of the most tumultuous times in modern history. She survived an abusive alcoholic husband and the death of her young son and then her oldest daughter. In the end, she succumbed to a little virus and wasted away because she just couldn't eat. She was kind and generous woman, but she, ne- she never seemed particularly happy when I was growing up. She didn't seem joyful. And I, I mean, looking back and understanding all the other things that she's gone through and all the times of struggle, and uh, she had to make it on her own. But towards the end of her life, though, before she died, when her body was wasting away, literally, she found a lasting hope. The last words my grandmother spoke to me, they weren't the words of stubborn resolve that I'd been used to as a kid. She was a good woman, but she wasn't a godly woman growing up. But these weren't those words. They weren't words of fear for her impending death, and she knew she was dying. And she wasn't even sad. She had never really saw her joyful, except for then. In fact, my grandmother was happy that I never saw her, and her last words... She spoke to me. Her last words she said to me with the biggest smile that I've ever seen on her face and a sparkle in her eyes that I've really never seen before. And she just said simply, I'll see you in heaven. See, she finally didn't have a false hope. She finally had a real hope. She found a real hope that gave real joy. No matter what life held, It brought her the first real joy she ever knew when she was unshaken by the last and biggest storm that she faced and that she finally gave into. But she clung to the anchor that would not give way. She truly found an anchor for her soul in Christ. We need assurance that we can draw near to the throne of grace. Sometimes life throws it throws us a curveball. It throws all kinds of storms and trials. And we need to be sure that we won't receive God's wrath, but that we'll receive His mercy and grace in time of need, like Hebrews 4 told us about. You see, the biggest doubts we can have are not just the ones that come because of trials and storms and suffering and persecution. You know the biggest doubts I've faced, that most of us face, the storms and troubles, are the temptations to doubt our faith, like the author of Hebrews has been talking about. We're tempted at times to doubt our forgiveness, aren't you? We're tempted to doubt God's wrath will never fall upon us. and We feel like it really will, even though He said otherwise. We're tempted to doubt that we will make it. We feel unworthy. We feel like we never will escape from our sins. Sometimes I just feel like I'm never going to be free from this. We feel naked and ashamed at times. As Hebrews has told us, we're aware of our weakness, our continued failings. At times it can seem as if the whole ocean is just pouring over us. But our text tells us that we have an anchor for our souls. An anchor, think about that, an anchor is something that holds a vessel secure. An anchor keeps a boat from drifting when seas are rough. And I remember that first time 
I was driving through the Norfolk, Newport News area, and I got to see a carrier up close. And I didn't realize just how big they were, 24 stories tall. It's amazing to see an anchor and dry, I mean, a, a, a carrier in dry dock. And then you look up and you see these massive anchors hanging off the, the bow and the stern. Each anchor I've found now is, weighs 60,000 pounds each. That's a lot of weight. But that's not the only bit of weight. Every link on the chain is 365 pounds. Not that you care, but what that means is that the total is that each anchor in its chain is 735,000 pounds. That's a big anchor. And that's on each end. 1,500, whatever that is, 1.5 million pounds of anchor happening. And the chains are over 1,000 feet long. It takes a big anchor to secure a big ship like an aircraft carrier. And those anchors are pretty reliable. They're probably the most reliable anchors man has ever made. But even those can't last. We have, this, this, these verses are meant to show us, we have an anchor. And all of Hebrews has been leading up to this, telling you who, who and how we have an anchor. We have an anchor in Christ Jesus and we have an anchor of hope that is secure. How do we apply all this? How do we put it to work? How do we deploy the anchor we have? Here's what we do. We must remember as disciples of Jesus Christ our identity is found in Jesus Christ alone. And to grow as disciples, we must constantly apply what God says to our lives. We need to be on guard wherever we're tempted to put hope in ourselves or somebody else or something else. Sometimes hoping in ourselves or in someone else or something other than Jesus, you can see those things in, in self-sufficiency or prayerlessness, right? You ever, you ever in that place? You realize, I haven't prayed in a long time. Hmm, maybe an indicator that we're, not that you have to pray as a ritual or routine or that feel condemnation if you don't know, it's just an indicator that you may not be thinking of placing your hope in Jesus. It can be seen when our hope is somewhere else, when we get angry quickly, when we don't get our way. I see that myself. It can be seen when we're deeply discouraged, when we get bad news or when people don't accept us, when other people don't understand you or maybe misrepresent you. Maybe that's happened to you or slander you. Where is your hope? Is hope in vindication or in revenge or in being understood? Is hope resting in Jesus, knowing that he was misunderstood and misrepresented and he can help you. He can give you the strength to endure, to forgive, to seek reconciliation, and then to be content even when and if it doesn't come. Because your hope's not in those things. Your hope's resting in the Almighty. You see, we're not promised a real neat resolution to all things in this life. And it doesn't come. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you, you may know that. But we can have hope in Jesus. We can have hope in the Almighty. Maybe you find that when your relationships are going badly or not going anywhere at all, you become depressed. It may be a sign you're hoping in someone other than Jesus, maybe yourself or another person. Maybe you find you're getting angry when your kids don't respond the way you want them to. And, or when you want them to, you might be hoping in someone else or something else. When you come stressed out, when you hit a financial difficulty, you might be putting your hope in something else other than Jesus. When you sin again, and then again, and then again, 
and you feel condemned. It can reveal your hope is in your own ability because you aren't able. So you can lose hope. You can lose sight of the fact, though, that Jesus was and is able. You can lose sight of the fact what He's done. And what He's done, what you could never do. And He's condemned your sins by taking them on Himself. You see, at times when our hope is challenged, and your hope will be challenged if it's not right now. We have to actively work to think about who Jesus is when we're tempted to doubt. It's all Hebrews is meant to do, to help us see who Jesus is so we can have hope in His promises. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus created the world. Remember? It says He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is who we have hope in. This Jesus Christ, the author of Hebrews has told us, He's made complete purification for the sins of all the place to trust in Him. He's the one whom angels worship. He laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The heavens, it tells us, are the work of His hands. He's eternal. Remember it says He'll roll up the heavens like He's rolling up a robe. And He'll change them like a garment. It's that easy for Him. He's eternal. He has no end. It tells us in Hebrews that all of His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. He's the one who was attested to us with signs and wonders and various miracles and, and the gifts of the Spirit. It tells us in Hebrews, everything has been subjected to Him. Even the world to come has been subjected to Him. And Jesus is eternally faithful. See all these truths? These are all from Hebrews. All these truths are meant to tell us we can trust in Jesus. We can trust in God's promises. We can have hope outside of ourselves. Look in verse 20. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, You see, he's our high priest. He's gone into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, bearing not a lamb, not a goat, not a bull, bearing his own wounds, showing his ultimate sacrifice to the Father on our behalf eternally. That's why those scars never go away. When he appeared to his disciples, he he held out his nail-scarred hands and said, See? Is there a testimony, a testament of my wounds on your behalf? He stands beside the veil, that, behind the veil that once separated us from God, and He forever bears those nail-scarred hands and feet and a spear-scarred side. He demonstrates forever He's eternally sufficient sacrifice on our behalf. And now He provides access to us into God's presence as a forerunner. And that word forerunner, it tells us that he's gone away. He's, he's gone ahead of us. He's made a way for us. He's cleared all the obstacles out of the way. He's taken our sins. He's removed God's wrath so we can follow after him into God's presence. I have the band come up. I know it's already noon, but I want, I'm full of wanting to find our hope in Jesus. So let's just have the band come up and we'll sing another song. And Let's remember that we're held securely by Jesus is our immovable anchor forever. We can have hope. He's been telling us, don't be dull of hearing. We can have hope not to be dull of hearing. We can have hope to persevere, anchored by our hope in Christ. And church isn't that strong encouragement for us to hold fast to the hope set before us. Don't you want to tell other people about our great reason for help and go and make disciples of Jesus?
You see, God's faithfulness to His promises, it gives us confidence to hold firmly to our hope in all of life, no matter what storms we face, no matter what we do. Let's stand.